Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV and we'll do our best to answer them. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host in person, <laughs> which hasn't happened. The last time we did a show in person, we were interviewing Ariana Huffington, if you remember. But uh, um, uh, you know, uh, my, my co-host Ray is the uh, founder, CEO of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. Uh, I see him on the news all the time, Fox, Bloomberg, CNBC. And uh, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, in person. This is awesome. Disrupting. I am here, Salesforce, <laughs> Ohana Northeast. Never been here in the studio. Here's my awesome co-host, Bala Afshar. As you always know, he's the number one follower for CMOs, CIOs, and even now CEOs on Twitter. Awesome advice. Also, best author himself on TV. But more importantly, we're here to talk about awesome guests like the one we have today. A very, very, very special guest. Who do we have on the show, Bala? What a privilege and honor for us to have Caroline Criado Perez as our first guest. She's the author of Invisible Woman, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Caroline is a writer, broadcaster, feminist activist, named Liberty Human Rights Campaigner of the Year, and awarded Most Excellent Order of the British Empire by the Queen. Oh, it's just unbelievable. It sounds ridiculous when you say it like that. It is such an unbelievable, by the way, we only have a 20 minute show, so I have to shorten your bio. She has a degree in English language literature from the University of Oxford and studied behavior and feminist economics at London School of Economics. She won the Financial Times and McKinsey 2019 Business Book of the Year awarded, awarded for the book we're going to be talking about, Invisible Woman. She's also author of a book titled Do It Like a Woman, published in 2015, which was amazing. Please follow Caroline on Twitter at C-C-R-I-A-D-O-P-E-R-E-Z. Welcome, Caroline, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much. Welcome. And, you know, look, incredible honor to have you on the show. Uh, what we really wanted to spend some time talking about some of the interesting insights in the book. What's interesting to me is you've quantified the obvious, right? That should have been very obvious. Mm. But start here. What made you decide to write the book? Um, well, really, it was that that I experienced that moment that I hope a lot of ex people experience when they read the book of suddenly realizing, uh, well, I should have asked this before, what's your position on swearing? No, go, go, go. Do what you need to do. <laughs> okay. well, when we read the blog, we'll take it out. <laughs> it will be bleeped out of the okay. book. This is, this is for that. You have a concern. Okay, I just don't want to offend Americans. Um, so yeah, my my I wanted to give people the experience I had, which was holy shit, I don't know what's going on in my own head. Um, I had this experience in my mid twenties uh, when I went to university uh, to study for an undergraduate degree. Um, I went a little bit late, and um, prior to that point, I had you know you say I'm a feminist activist. I had not been a feminist activist. I would have laughed you out of the room if you'd said I was going to end up a feminist activist. I thought feminism was so stupid. I thought it was embarrassing. I was embarrassed by it. Um, you know, men and women are equal now. This is just, you know, basically an excuse for women who are just a bit rubbish and can't be bothered to put the work in. And um, yeah, I mean, it's embarrassing, but that's what I thought. It's best to be honest about these things. Then you anyway, have to go to the bathroom. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had to read this book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory. And it just completely changed my life, despite it having a slightly wonkish title. Um, because it made me 
realize what was going on in my head. So basically it had this section about generic, the generic masculine in language. So he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. Obviously in languages like French and German and various other gendered languages, it's much more interwoven, but you know, in English, it's just this. And, you know, I think like a lot of people who don't know much about feminism, I had actually heard, you know, that feminists, God, they're so stupid, right? They have a problem with he to mean he or she when everyone knows it means he or she. God, how trivial. This just shows how stupid feminism is. That was my reaction to it. Like, I think a lot of people, because it sounds so stupid. But then I read this line that I'd never heard before, which was actually when people hear these words, they picture a man. And that just blew my mind because I realized for the first time that I was picturing men when I heard these words. And it wasn't just that realization. It was also, how have I never noticed this before? You know, I'm 26. I, I'm a woman. If this is generic, why am I not picturing women at least 50% of the time? But really more was, was why, am I not no why have I not noticed it? It was just so shocking to me. And then I realized actually it went way beyond that. It was for pretty much any gender neutral term. So like lawyer, doctor, politician, you know, scientist, anything. I would just picture men. And so just this realization that this was going on in my head at, without my knowing it just really made me start to question so many things. Um, because I think we all think like to think of ourselves as objective and we put a very high faith in our objectivity and, and it's, it's seen as bad to be subjective which is rubbish, like it's nonsense. Everyone is subjective, that's just reality. We're not objective because we're not machines. Um, although we can get into how subjective machines are later. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I think I was kind of primed to notice when there was a, an assumption that men represented the gender neutral, that men represented the universal, that men were the default. So I know, start, you know, as you say, I went and studied uh, behavioral and feminist ec economics and there I discovered how our entire economy is built around basically half of humanity and then I you know remember discovering that asylum policy the the international convention the UN convention on, on refugees you know this amazing document that was drawn up uh, with the best of intentions absolutely no way that that was deliberately drawn up to make make it harder for women to claim asylum than men um, but has been drawn up in such a way that it is harder for women to claim asylum than men because they have done things like you have to be able to leave the country you're fleeing from before you can claim asylum. That's just much harder for women. They're less likely to be able to travel legally, get a visa. Uh, you have to be able to prove that you're being persecuted for a specific set of reasons. Those reasons don't include sex and gender, even though that's the main reason that women are being persecuted. So I was sort of noticing these examples as I sort of continued along my life I guess and then finally I came across the gender data gap in medicine and discovered that there was this same assumption that the male body was the neutral universal body in medicine and that women were dying because we were misdiagnosing them because we didn't have the right treatment for them and all because of this completely misguided idea that men are neutral men are gender neutral basically um, and at that point I kind of lost my shit and <laughs> like, I, I have to write a book about this um so yeah that is that is why basically because i lost my shit that's what happened yeah. <laughs> well i mean in, in your book you reference uh transformations transportation systems medical devices and treatments um tax structures uh, consumer mm. products we'll talk about the iphone uh, perhaps even you know smartphones voice recognition uh logic and technology but you did uh, you know uh, 
talk about misdiagnosing women because of symptoms and, and heart attacks. And, and mm. the clinical trials didn't include women. Uh, mm. So the end result was you didn't have effective treatment and you had more side effects. Of all these areas that you discovered, and including your book, was, was there one that you like, I can't believe, like, like shocking? I mean, all of it sounds unbelievable. Yeah. Was I mean, that really, you really lost your shit. Um, I think it's quite hard to pick one because they are all really shocking. Um, So um, I'm going to do two things. First of all, I'm going to tell you a story that I just found kind of hilarious in a really dark way. So um, as you say, we know far more about heart disease in men, um, despite the fact that it's the number one killer of women in the US and and the EU. Um, Women are more likely to die following a heart attack than men. Um, and that's been the case since 1984. Women are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed. Um, and this is because the research has been heavily biased towards men. And I came across this very interesting story about Viagra. So for those of you who don't know how Viagra was discovered, it was discovered by accident, a happy accident, one might say, um, which was in a drug trial for heart medication and specifically an all-male drug trial for heart medication. Anyway, it turned out Viagra is not that great for curing your heart disease, but it does have this happy side effect. And, you know, within a few years, Viagra was rolled out and, you know, and like, that's a good thing, right? Because erectile dysfunction is a serious problem and men need medication for it. So it's good that that happened. Fast forward, so that's like the late 90s Viagra got released. Fast forward to 2013, and a researcher realizes that the active ingredient in Viagra quite possibly could be very useful for dealing with period pain. Oh. And there isn't really anything out there that works for period pain. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely not over the counter. You can get some stuff on prescription, but it has quite a lot of side effects and you know, it's just not ideal. So, and that affects a lot of women, you know, a huge number of women are very debilitated, but debilitated by period pain. And, you know, yeah. you tell this to any woman and their eyes light up and go, what? Um, but why, why did it take so long? Primary hypothesis was that um, it would provide four hours of pain relief with no side effects. By this point, you know, I'm falling off my chair. Um, however, they, so they completed a small scale trial, which is very promising but they ran out of funding and they have since then, despite several applications to the National Institute of Health, been unable to get funding to complete this um, trial. And the reason for that is that it is not seen as enough of a public health priority. And oh, um, so basically, <laughs> so, so we're I can't advise, me page? <laughs> advise people to take Viagra because we don't know exactly if it works or not or what the side effects might be. Nice. But I just sort of think that's a really fascinating um example of of how this works you know what if we'd included women at that initial trial stage you know might we have a drug for period pain by this point um so that was an example that i guess kind of made me laugh at the ridiculousness of it um particularly the point that we now can't get funding uh to find out whether or not this would actually work for women Um, are we going to set up a gofundme page for this I mean, we could try, I guess. Because the thing is, private companies don't want to fund it um, for various reasons. Like, it it doesn't, they don't tend to fund um, independent researchers. Also, you know, 
they don't want to damage the potential revenue that already is being created by this drug. So there isn't a financial incentive. Also, because we have so little data on women, I think it's hard for them to understand exactly what the financial case would be, um, which is a problem you run up to run up against a lot, actually, in innovation for women when it comes to funding, um, sort of private funding, like venture capital funding, is having enough data to be able to make a really good business case just because we aren't collecting enough data on women. Um, but the thing that I found most shocking wasn't actually an example. It, it was the excuses that I came across. Um, because, you know, by the time, like, I'm, I'm very um, understanding of people who just have forgotten women. Because I know that I'd been doing that. And we all do that. And that's, that's quite normal. Like, I think you mentioned um, iPhones. I think often of the Apple healthcare app, the tracker app, that you could track your molybdenum, which no one has ever even heard of and your copper intake, which no one knows how to measure, but you couldn't track your period. And, you know, I just think it's totally, it's just not credible that Apple did that deliberately, right? They just forgot that periods exist. Let's be honest, that's what happened. <laughs> and they forgot that periods exist because they didn't have enough people with periods on their design team. You know, it's a very open and shut case of what happened there. That was not a deliberate, malicious. What about the hardware design of the phone? Can you speak a little bit about that as well? Uh-huh. Um, so, well, I mean, basically, the, there is not enough research on this, which was very frustrating for me, because it's a particular passion of mine, ever since I got um, RSI from my iPhone 6. And I wanted to find out, is there any research into the effects of increasing handset size right. on hands? And specifically, is there sex disaggregated data on this? And basically, there just isn't anything out there. There is um, research showing that, yes, increased phone size does have an impact on hand and wrist health. Yeah. Um, but the data has not been sex disaggregated, even though logically it would be worse for women because women have on average smaller hands than men. Um, yeah. But there is really interesting research that I found that sort of shines a light on it from a very unlikely quarter, perhaps, which is the classical music Ooh, <laughs> wow. sphere. Um, where basically um, there have, there's been a fair amount of research into um, hand size um, for, uh, for pianists. So basically, and the reason I think this is so interesting is, okay, it's not like nobody's going to die from this and it's not the like most common issue that you're going to encounter, like a concert pianist with hand issues. But I think it's really interesting in terms of, have you ever considered the idea that a piano might be unfair to women like that just would never occur to you why why would you think about that it's just a piano but of course it makes sense when you think about it because your hands are having to interact with the keyboard and the keyboard is too big for women's hands basically and they've done this really fascinating research looking a at hand size distribution and the level of international acclaim that concert pianists have wow. and basically it's hugely connected to hand size they get a hold of an octave. Right, right. I mean, but more than an octave. And, and an octave is, is, you know, a stretch for a lot of average female hand sizes. Um, and, and so essentially women are designed out in many ways from achieving the top of their game in classical music. Um, but also, you know, there has been some research, again, into um, the effect on hand health, like levels of arthritis and all sorts of you know hand issues again not sex disaggregated data which is basically 
exactly a problem I came up against again and again and again. But they did find, you know, that smaller hand sizes, it was an all-male study, but men with smaller hand sizes were more likely to suffer hand health problems. So I sort of stick that together and strongly suggest that the ever-increasing hand size, um, ever-increasing size of of handheld devices is inevitably going to be causing hand health problems for women. But, you know, again, I don't believe that that's a deliberate thing. You know, I don't think smartphone designers hate women. (laughs) They just haven't thought about it because we're so used to thinking of the, you know, of men as just this neutral, which, which is basically what the excuses are. The excuses that you get are things like, well, we can't include women in the, in this medical trial because, you know, the menstrual cycle will interfere with the results. Well, yes. (laughs) that's why you have to include it you know because those results those those interferences can be really significant or another excuse that's quite popular is um we'll start off in men you know the neutral sex and then we'll add women at a later date if we discover anything interesting which a is a really perfect in you know sort of evocation of the argument that i'm making that we think of men as neutral but also it's actually really dangerous like one study i came across in the course of my research was um looking at male and female cells and then exposing them to estrogen and then exposing them to a virus. And basically the female cells were able to use the estrogen to fight off the virus, but the male cells weren't. And so they couldn't Mm -hmm. fight off the virus. And so you think about that, right? And if you start off in male cells, which most trials do, you would conclude, oh, well, estrogen Mm -hmm. doesn't do anything and you wouldn't develop it any further. So I I think that was the thing I found most shocking because, you know, I, I don't really mind people not knowing but medical researchers are aware of the huge issues for women of not including them in, in trials. Um, so and say, that, that pisses me off. <laughs> so would you say the solution then is, is to make sure that when we're trying to design these solutions, like the first principles, the root cause is, is really not including this in the design thinking, right? I mean, this is the empathy aspect where you've got to consider it from all different areas. Gender is one aspect of it. There are probably mm-hmm. other elements that we typically don't do. Um, when Absolutely. We but, and what's what's scary? Well, there's really good examples from like, you know, uh, I, I did a radio show the other day and the presenter was talking about how when she uses, um, you know, the automatic hand wash, yeah. Oh, yeah. the sensor doesn't see her hands, you know, because <laughs> her hands are too dark and they've only been tested on white hands, you know. And Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, what's scary is that when we're talking about like physical entities like a phone, you can see it, you can, yes. but as we move to automation, autonomous, mm. algorithmic economy, how do you identify these blind spots in algorithms when the world is becoming software? Yeah. And all of our, you know, beliefs are now being codified into algorithms. And if it, if it excludes 51% of the population, I mean, what? Uh, so you're going to be writing a lot of books. We got a lot more books coming out of you. Oh God, I hope not. But, I mean, yeah, it's it's terrifying because terrifying. you know we're we're basically literally coding inequality into our future. That's right. But That's right. but it's worse because you know algorithms, machine learning, it amplifies the biases that we feed it, and there's very good evidence to show this, and it amplifies them by a really significant amount. So, you know, basically it gets better and better at being biased. You know, that's companies, what we're doing at the moment. Have companies that are really emphasizing um, their growth trajectory built on top of AI, are they reaching out to you for, you know, consulting and, you know, guiding them to better understand? I mean, this, this uh, is uh, frightening, really, it really is. <laughs> I have had one company 
reach out to me um, for guidance on helping with their data gap issues with their AI, but no, not, not a huge number. But I mean, I have been contacted by a lot of people, you know, researchers, people in government, um, who are who have read the book and are trying to make things better, which you know is fantastic. And I know there are people, <clears throat> excuse me, within companies that are trying to do it. But yeah, you're right. Those goddamn algorithm companies should be getting in touch with me and asking me to fix fix their problems. I'm with you. There you have it. You know it. what? Can, you might can, be able to help with we that. We might be able to help with that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Alan Criado Perez, special, special, special guest, writing the book. <laughs> Invisible Women Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Please catch out her book. Check her out her book. Check out her on Twitter at C-C-R-I-A-D-O-P-E-R-E-Z. Thank you so much for being on Disrupt TV. We'll, get, uh, we'll definitely get you back, back on. So. Terrific. Thank you so much. We Great to be here. Thank you. Happy, Happy Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Day. <laughs> <laughs> and you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, uh... you know, this, this, you're going to see a lot of this, especially in AI. We are about to enter an era where it's gonna be, when do we apply intelligent automation? When do we augment the machine with the human? When do we augment the human with the machine? And when do we trust human judgment? And that data bias in all different areas is going to be exposed very, very quickly. We're gonna see that. We're gonna be able to codify that and understand where we've gone wrong. But who do we have next? We've got a very, very special guest yeah, as well. You know, we talked about AI algorithms and now we're gonna talk about the technology that some believe may be as impactful or more impactful than the internet. So. We're here with Raj Rao, General Manager at IBM Food Trust. Raj serves as General Manager of IBM Food Trust, the world's only enterprise class blockchain platform that is solely focused on enhancing efficiency, safety, transparency of the global food supply chain. In his role, Raj leads the platform and business expansion of IBM Food Trust with ecosystem players involving the world's leading retailers, consumer good companies, food suppliers, and growers through shared, permissioned, and secure blockchain data networks that are fueled by AI and cognitive applications. So it's really a combination of these incredible emerging technologies. Raj previously was the CEO of Ford Mobility, incredible amount of innovation and achievements in, in that previous role as well. You can follow Raj on Twitter at S-F-R-A-J-R-A-O. Welcome Raj to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much, Vala, and great to see you again, Ray. How are you doing? Yeah, we're doing great, man. You're doing what I'm normally doing, broadcasting live in motion. <laughs> this is mobility. Yeah. I'm, I'm in an autonomous, yeah, I'm an autonomous vehicle is actually driving at 70 miles an hour. So <laughs> <laughs> This is awesome. Hey, so, so, you, awesome. So, so you basically, I, I, I think people should understand your background first before we get here, because you do not have the traditional IBM executive background. You've been doing so many, many different things, including the Ford Mobility, which we talked about a little bit. Give everyone a context of like how you got to where you got to in this role and then of course it's going to be fun talking about the networks the blockchain the other things that you've been doing with a lot of these uh, uh a lot of what you've been doing with food trust sure thanks for the question so like most of you i'm a student of innovation and that that passion was uh, uh not to date myself but at the time that a book called In Search of Excellence was making business waves. And you, know, as you probably remember in that book, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a new book. Uh, it's the you know, best-selling business book ever. So, you know, uh, amongst other things, I hope you have it there. It's a, it's a good book to have. Uh, but, so, you know, you know these two the McKinsey guys, including... <laughs> I'm yeah, sure you did. So, you story. know, these two McKinsey guys... Okay, so Tom Peter is one of the, you know, storied guys who wrote that book. 
had studied, you know, what, 65 companies and he distilled it down to 42, 43 companies. And, you know, he's a very simple seven chapter thesis, seven, you know, framework uh, around how do these com- companies become great? Mm. You know, how do, how do companies survive, you know, uh, 100 years? And how do they stay on top of their game? And there are obviously some common elements. And one of them happened to be this kind of culture of innovation and, and wanting to always be, you know, at the forefront of things that people cared about and people would pay money to buy and place a value. So I, at, at, when I was doing my MBA, I decided that I would want to work for as many of those companies as possible. And I was very fortunate. My first job was with Procter & Gamble. And one of the assignments I had was to help uh, the company in an innovation project they were doing around cosmetics and being able to transform the healthcare and beauty care businesses. So I did that for a few years. Hmm. And then uh, my next you know, op- opportunity to work one of these excellent companies was 3M, uh, which wow. you know, back, when, back when Google didn't exist, uh, 3M already kind of culture of you know, customer-inspired innovation. You know, you got to be, they call it follow the smokestacks where they would arm their sales teams to go out in the field, find factories, go call on the factories and find out how can you improve process, right? How can you improve outcomes? And, and they would come back to the lab and bring customer inspired stories and build great innovation outcomes. So I continued that path. Uh, and, and, you know, I should tell you that my, before I got my job at PNG, my internship actually was with IBM. And, and I was a, as a kid, I was a kid then. And last year when I had my first, get a trip with IBM out to meet clients in Europe. I happened to go to the same location in London South Bank where I'd done my internship 29 years ago. Oh, wow. So, so, yeah. full, so full cycle, I joined 3M, became a the company. Again, around, at that time, the disruptive force was Amazon, uh, IoT, you know, service business models wrapped around products. So I got introduced to a lot of senior people at IBM uh, that had partnered with 3M to build things that you and I use every day including the phone, uh, the epic phone and the touchscreen system in the phone, how the glass stays on the surface and why it doesn't break when it's dropped. All that stuff was kind of inventions of 3M, you know. So, you know, I learned a lot, got close to some key people at IBM, and here I am. I think, you know, the IBM that you probably see from the outside is very different than the IBM I see from the inside, right? And, and from the outside, it's all about patents, about great innovations, about platform tech. What I see from the inside is a culture of innovative people sure. and with great ideas. And, and I work in a part of the business now that is very innovative. And so I'm really excited. I think being a student of innovation is not really a job. It's, um, you know, it's a real passion that I have and I enjoy it. That's amazing. Yeah, IBM for 26 years in a row has been a number one patent uh, source of any company in the world, averaging almost 10,000 patents a year, which is it's, it's unbelievable. It's, so certainly, certainly a culture of innovation. Congratulations on your new CEO. But let's talk about the IBM Food Trust. How did you get started? Why was it formed? What are the problems you're trying to solve? And who else is involved in this ecosystem around uh, sure. Food Trust? So I'll tell you the problems that are, you know, get solved here. So, you know, every minute, someone in the U.S. is falling sick from a foodborne illness. Wow. Uh, every 15 minutes, $5 million worth of food is being thrown out, wasted. Okay, and that, that's good. And then over 50% of the seafood uh, in New York and many other states in the U.S. are mislabeled or fraud. So solving these problems is not not something that should be ignored. So food trust uh, wait, wait, wait. reason like for my, existence. Like my farm fresh line caught salmon is really like 
not far, it's farm raised. <laughs> no, Ray, I don't want to disappoint you, but uh, odds are it's not right, uh, and and it's not anybody's. You know, it's not one person's fault. It's just the way things have evolved over time, right? So food supply chains, as you know, are very very global. So to answer your question, I think the inspiration for this project came from the world's largest retailer of food and many other things, Walmart, and they said, hey, if I'm going to be selling, you know, fresh cut mangoes, and and if I need to know if somebody walks up to me and says where did this come from? I should be able to answer that question. And I shouldn't say, well, this guy supplied it to me. So I think the inspiration came from Frank Yanis, who at the time was uh, with Walmart, and a really successful leader that was concerned about answering questions like that. So he challenged IBM to say, you know, can we answer that together? So that led one thing to another. Uh, and obviously, you know, the, the premise for that whole project was the three things I mentioned to you. Trust in labeling, reduce waste, full traceability if there's food recall issues. And, and we, we've done that well, you know, and that's helped us build uh, a industry offering. But I think the inflection point occurred a little later when Carrefour came up to us and said, you know, we're, we're a European-based retailer. We love, you know, all the things you've helped Walmart solve, but we have a consumer confidence opportunity and a consumer branding opportunity. We'd like our brands that we sell to tell stories, stories about who made the product, where the product comes from, uh, and authenticity and labeling, can you guys work with us? And that's been a very successful, um, you know, investment for both sides in kind of telling that story as well. And in that journey, we've attracted a lot of brands like Nestle to come on board and share in that storytelling. So it's uh, it's going pretty well. You know, I think retailers obviously have been the mainstay of what we do, but we're increasingly seeing the extended ecosystem partake in this. So how does blockchain play a role in this? This seems to be more than blockchain, right? I mean, it seems to be an ecosystem, seems to be a coalition. Mm -hmm. You guys even won an award from us. From, from, from I, It was a Constellation Supernova Award winner for this. So share a little bit of why, why it's more than blockchain and why blockchain plays a role. Yeah, Ray, great question. I, I think, you know, um, to answer these and solve these issues, we've got to have access to a lot of data that um, people generally don't share or systems don't share because we are siloed, whether you like it or not. Uh, even within the food supply chain, there are so many different actors and nobody can use one system, right? So, so by default, data is siloed. And, and the second issue is industry governance, right? So suppliers supply competing uh, retailers and there's private labels. So there's inherent business conflict in the model of retail. So, you know, when you think about enterprise blockchain and, and the idea of uh, trust, and how do you manage trust, i.e. permission data? And how do you ensure the data that you're sharing is immutable so that you can actually deal with traceability with confidence? It sounded like blockchain would be a great solution for us, but the things that were missing was a governance framework and a data sharing model and also trusted permission networks. So we had to go and convene ecosystems that would collaborate without having to have overreach in each other's data. They just had to see enough about the events of transformation to be able to have confidence that that was a supply chain. So blockchain was a very logical path for us, but when we overlay AI and we overlay IoT, it gets really interesting. So I think it's not that blockchain is a solution to all problems. I think it's one of the three in the holy trifecta and you know, the award you mentioned really kind of distinguished IBM as being one of the companies that had brought those three things together 
really solve a problem uh, and do it in a, you know, recognizing that you, you don't want IBM to own the data. You don't want IBM to be the adjudicator of trust. You don't want IBM to, to control, uh, you know, who gets to extract value and doesn't extract value. So it's really helping us play out the convening role very successfully. Sure, sure. You, you talked about waste. You talked about trust and optimization of processes and scale. If you look back 50 years ago, there was only three mega cities um, defined by 10 million population or more. Uh, I think Mexico City, Tokyo, okay. and New York. Uh, according to World Economic Forum UN, if you look at 2050, you're going to have 50 megacities and you have a population of close to 10 billion that we have to feed. It, and it means 70% more production of food than 2019 mm -hmm. in order to be able to address the 7.4 billion today population to 10 billion in 30 years from now. Uh, and a third of prepared food is wasted today. So can we, when you think about disruption and use of emerging technologies like AI and blockchain, can you talk to us about trends regarding food consumption and production and how you see efficiencies and, and, and changing markets when we look ahead 10, 20, 30 years from now? Thanks for that question. Well, I just had, you know, I just got back from Peru. Okay, I spent a few days there wow. and, you know, it's, you know, it's a, in breadbasket economy, as you know. So yeah. I met with farmers, cooperatives, I met with, uh, tech, uh, you know, uh, tech companies, and I also met, obviously, you know, people that are deeply involved in the cocoa industry. So the reality, when you talk about feeding the next billion, right, there's a, it's not just an issue of removing waste, because that waste comment I made is essentially a U.S. problem. Okay. It's not going to feed, that waste is not going to be removing that waste feed the growing population, which happens right. to be in everywhere other than the U.S., right? So it happens to be in Africa, it happens to be in Asia. Sure. So we have to add supply in a thoughtful way. What that means is we have to address the issue of sustainability and at the same time issue the, uh, address the issue of access to food technology. And it's need to do both at the same time. So what I heard from my conversation with people at the grassroots of this is we've got to give more people access to farm tech and financing, which means that the fact that they don't even have title to the land they're growing stuff on, and they have no records of sales because they sell to a cooperative which washes the cocoa and then sells it to traders. And then there's no trace back to the farmer. And there's no, no they don't have a bankable ID. They don't have the equivalent of Dun & Bradstreet score, right? They, they don't have a credit score. <laughs> so, 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 yeah, so, yeah. How, so how are you going to help these farmers improve productivity and do sustainable farming? Well, you have to create a way to bank them, right? So, so one of the projects we did late last year that I mentioned to Ray was with the coffee industry, where we wanted, we, we wanted to very much tokenize farmers. Let them tell us how much they're selling the crop for, who are they selling it to, how much are they selling, and give us a sense of, you know, their, their, their work. And, and that, you know, aspect of Farmer Connect helps us on blockchain to create a way for banks to do microloans or give them structured finance so they can invest in infrastructure and invest in improving crop yield and do it in a sustainable way so they can earn a higher price for their crop. So that's one half of the problem. The other half of the problem is food waste in the middle of the supply chain. So you and I want to eat fresher food yeah. You and I want to eat food that's grown sustainably. We want it to be organic to the extent that it's possible. And we'd like it to be local. 
So to do all of those things, you have to orchestrate supply chains in a completely different way. You have to make them, you know, much more local and you have to help them get fresher product to you faster. So that's why the work we've done with Golden State Foods, for example, has played specifically into that. They are one of the largest suppliers to the fast food and quick serve industries where you have large volumes of that supply chain moving fresh away from frozen. So between those two extremes, you'll see where most work that we are currently doing fall under, either close to the farm or close to the middle and end of the supply chain. Now, now on one hand, like the technology is hard, but it seems like building a coalition is even harder. So yeah. talk a little bit about that because there are competing interests in, in these areas. And how do you get everyone to some, I don't know, as, as Paul Greenberg calls it, a commonwealth of self-interest. So. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, it's, it's not easy to do, uh, but we're, we're doing our best. Uh, we convened uh, what is called an advisory council, Ray. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to meet many of them soon. Uh, so the advisory council's role is to um, protect uh, data primarily, but also to convene an, a joint industry point of view of what chain needs to occur and at what pace that chain needs to you know, be executed against time frame. The exact, the advisory council of food trust comprises the biggest names in food retailing and food brands. So you'd find Nestle involved, you'd find Carrefour involved, you'd find Walmart, Albertsons, uh, and, 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 and Dole and Driscoll. These companies all have a common, uh, you know, mandate and a common vision of the future of how food gets handled. We focus on those commonalities and then we say, what, what change do we want to advocate for as a group and as a team? And what, what are we prepared to do jointly that would move things forward? So we run these meetings monthly with the executive council of the advisory group, and we, we put a charter around it. But the interesting thing, Ray, is that the behavioral shift at IBM is equally interesting to observe here, which is this concept, what I learned earlier in my career, is all concept of open innovation, mm. right? Where you let your clients help you figure out what you should invest in and what to prioritize and bring in new ideas and build solutions in the market that are really outside in. And, and I think we're getting really good at that, for example, with Food Trust, where we let this council not just tell us what the aspiration is, but also govern us, right? Govern Food Trust. So I think it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship where they are changing and they're expecting us to also change the way we do things. And we've had a lot of success so far convening those conversations. And I think that's the way it's going to probably play out going forward too. Uh, my last question to you, uh, you know, Walmart invested in smart robots doing the inventory mm -hmm. analysis in their stores. By doing that, they were able to shift 35,000 Walmart employees through Walmart University, training them to be personal shoppers. So with a multi-billion dollar investment in Jet to give them e-commerce capability, and solving that last mile with now an army of personal shoppers, including companies like Amazon that have spent billions getting prime users one day access to foods and services. Do you believe that food trust and using AI and blockchain and really optimizing a process around food, that, that may be a lever in terms of adoption of e-commerce for companies like Walmart that can really benefit from having a secure trusted ecosystem that will really serve their digital consumers uh, you know, in the very near future. Absolutely, uh, well said. I think you know, the, the autonomous future is already upon us, yeah. right? So 
We already participate in it every time we use, uh, you know, a Fetch Me app. Right. So Fetch Me prepared food, uh, and it's mostly ghost kitchens, as you know now, <laughs> and and sight unseen. So right. so you know when you roboticize how you execute against the way you and I are behaving, right. the more efficient you're going to get because you can't use the old methods to solve that problem. So yeah. what you're describing here is really the kind of things that we need those robots to be able to verify the food, verify quality, verify provenance, put it and deliver it with trust and confidence that the customer is going to come back and buy even more. So, Absolutely. you know, it's not just Walmart that's playing in the forefront of that. Many other companies are. And, you know, we appreciate that question very much. I think that's the way we see it. We see uh, trust being more and more automated. For sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I mean, it's, it's autonomous decade, right? Self-driving, self-healing, self-sensing. Mm -hmm. We're going to see a lot of that. We're here with Raj Rao, General Manager, IBM Food Trust. Um, and more importantly, you can follow him on Twitter at SF Raj Rao. He is live. He's in motion. And of course, he's out <laughs> in the valley. So we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Yeah, this show, you're terrific. Thanks, you're guys. Terrific. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. Who is it? Future is already here, just unevenly distributed. Uh, and our guests remind us of that every week. It's uh, it's it's incredible to 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 think about, you know, the importance of trust and automation in the food industry, and it's going to explode. I mean, e-commerce right now is only about fifteen percent of you know transactions, but projections are by two thousand thirty could be as much as fifty percent. So. So, you know, what we typically do when we talk about wide variety of topics like Viagra and cocoa beans, <laughs> we bring Ron Miller <laughs> to help synthesize <laughs> for us. So it's our uh, pleasure to have Ron Miller, uh, who's the enterprise technology reporter for TechCrunch. Ron's been a uh, uh, freelance technology journalist, one of the more prominent journalists in our space uh, since 1998. Uh, and, and he is without a doubt, first ballot Hall of Fame disrupt inductee, uh, who will receive 100% of the votes, unlike Derek Jeter. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> please follow Ron on Twitter. He's a must follow on Twitter. And read his blogs at Ron underscore Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. Welcome back. I'm guessing a dozen appearances, Ron Miller to Disrupt TV. Thanks, guys. It's always great to be here. So, so we got a lot of topics we can go. Where do you want to go? Very, very busy week. Yeah. We, got, we got Snowflake, IPO, we've got Coronavirus and Mobile World Congress, yeah. the state of Google Cloud. What's up with Xerox, CI, yeah. Jedi, and, and Ken Glock? I mean, it's crazy. So, so what, do you, what do you want to start with? What's going on this week? What's, what's on your mind? Want to start with um, Snowflake? Let's sure. go with Snowflake. It. It's a nice, nice one. Twelve okay. billion dollars. Yeah, um, Snowflake, as you know, is, is a cloud data warehouse. It's agnostic. It works in all the clouds. And I think one of the reasons that it's, it's, it's attracting the attention of investors and customers and the cloud vendors themselves is that it has this ability to be this kind of neutral, uh, you know, data holder where you can, and right now, one of the big hot topics, I mean, we heard about it a lot at reInvent, but we're, we're hearing about it a lot at, in different, different venues is, that getting data from one cloud to another is a big deal right now. And it's very difficult to do. And one of the advantages that Snowflake offers its customers mm -hmm. is that you can get, you can kind of, once you put it in a Snowflake, at least this is how they describe it to me, you can then move it from cloud to cloud with very little, um, you know, alteration. And that makes it, uh, you know, a very valuable property. And to 
as if to prove that, they got a $479 million investment this week. And their valuation was, believe it or not, $12.4 billion, which, which I think is the highest private valuation for an enterprise startup ever. I, I'm, I'm not sure of that, but I, I think it is. You guys might know better than I. And then just consider this. In October 2018, they had a, they had a valuation of $3.9 billion. So I did the math before I came on here. That's an $8 billion difference between October 2018 and 16 months later. And the funny thing is that Frank Slootman, who, as you know, is the CEO there, the really, really good guy, he said they didn't even need this $479 million. But, you know, when investors come and they, they want to they want to be involved. Um, the, the thing now is like, like you hear about a lot of companies who are taking huge sums of money who apparently don't need it at that moment. So is the hottest, this is the hottest IPO. I think the backstory behind this too is um, Bob Muglia, Microsoft fame. He came in, cleaned up the product, got it ready to go, and they got rid of him. I know, I know. I don't know what happened there. But uh, I, I do know that, uh, you know, as far as the IPO, that Slootman told me um, last week that, uh, you know, usually when you ask the IPO question, you get the standard, well, we're of sufficient size and we could we're go. We're going for a special <laughs> event. <laughs> but he was actually pretty straight with me. And he said, look, we're going to go. It could be as early as this summer. It could be as late as sometime next year. He claimed he's not under pressure from investors, even though they have, you know, like a more than a billion dollars into them. But he said, he acknowledged that, you know, the employees who, who want to get their equity out of the company are, you know, they, they, they're hankering to do that. And he doesn't dismiss that. But right now he's like trying to find that, you know, that, that perfect moment. He is. And, and, and he took the CFO from ServiceNow that he went IPO with as well. I mean, this is going to be the hottest IPO this year. Uh, in the enterprise side. It is, is by far the most interesting one that's coming out. But switching topics, coronavirus, Mobile World Congress canceled? I mean, come on, what's going on? Oh, this is wild. I mean, I don't know a lot about this, guys. I didn't write about it, but I mean, what, I, what I've heard about it, it's pretty crazy. You know, there's, there's a lot of hysteria is what I'm hearing. And, um, you know, it's, it's a shame because if you look at what that, that event brings to the Barcelona economy, it's huge. Um, you know, hotels are crazy, crazy priced that week. Every restaurant is full. You know, the subways are mobbed. There's, there's temp jobs for, for young people who are out of work. I mean, there's just like all kinds of you know, economic uh, advantages of having this event in the city. And it's really a shame that um, it's been called off because it's, it's going to end up, you know, hurting a lot of people who, who have nothing to do with this. And, you know, again, I don't know the ins and outs. I'm not. A, I'm not a you know expert on on viruses, but I can I can tell you that you know having been to that event, it's a, it's a it's a major major thing, and Absolutely. it's really huge for for that city and for the industry that that's not going to happen. One of the biggest tech events in Europe. Right? Is it? and you know and, and mobile walls and you know. Yeah, remember Hanover Messi maybe is the yeah, other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the Catalan economy is going to take a, a big hit there. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so, but it's yeah. kind of crazy. I mean, if you think about it, like. 50, something like something like 40 to 50% of the vendors were coming from China that were actually yeah. sponsoring the yeah. show. So there's a there's definitely a big public health risk uh, in what we haven't seen as a World Health Organization pandemic uh, haven't been announced there. So 
But uh, happier stuff, uh, <laughs> CIA Jedi contract. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know how happy that is, but uh, that's a huge bunch of drama, too. I mean, you, you look at what's going on at... Uh, Okay, so I mean, you guys know this story goes back to like 2018, and I've been I've been covering it since very early on. You were one of the earliest folks on this story. Yeah, and please, please, you know, catch up our audience who may not be familiar with this, you know, a 10 billion dollar multi year contract. And so, give us the background, and then what happened with the judge recently? Okay, so I mean, to try and make a very long story short, yeah. uh, it's a 10 billion dollar 10 year contract, and the way the DoD set it up was winner take all. So instead of saying we're going to look at best of breed and we're going to look at, uh, you know, changing cloud landscapes, we're going to, their argument was we want one vendor and that'll make it easier to kind of manage. So whether you agree with that or not, that was the way they decided to do it. And from the this beginning, DOD contract, okay. <laughs> billion dollars. And, and so, I mean, 10 billion seems like a lot of money, but the, you know, the worldwide uh, cloud market right now is 100 billion and growing very quickly. But still, to get that contract would be a big deal for any cloud company because Absolutely. it's the government and it's it's the military. And if you can if you can create a a secure cloud for the military, you can create a secure cloud for a lot of different departments in the government and the private sector. Okay, so that's the kind of the backstory. Then you had every cloud company wanted in on this, you know, and um, and of course, you know, Google's dropped out early because they got protests from their employees. Oracle was protesting every anywhere it could to the government agencies that were our watchdogs of government procurement, to the federal court. They, they lost on every count. And what they, their claim was, what Oracle claimed was that the, the contract was designed specifically for Amazon to win. So fast forward to April of last year and the DOD says there are two finalists, Microsoft and Amazon. And then fast forward to October of this year, right. and they choose Microsoft. Now, um, that was a huge surprise to everybody because I think conventional wisdom would have said it was going to be Amazon. But if you go back to August, you had the president intervening and asking the, the uh, Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, to review the contract process. And then there's you know, reports that he told Jim Mattis at one point, who was the Secretary of Defense, that he didn't want Jeff Bezos' company to have uh, this contract. So there's all kinds of political drama around it. And then they choose Microsoft and Amazon's not happy. So Amazon goes to court and says, you know, this wasn't right. They say there's political interference on the part of the president, which is, they claim, unprecedented in a government procurement contract. And then they said, if you look at, you know, just the the merits of how they compare to Microsoft on the um, on the RFP, they believe that on the majority of them, they 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 were better in in terms of what the government was looking for, what the DoD was looking for. So you have all that, okay? And mm -hmm. then they said, okay, you know, this is a Netflix series by now. If you, <laughs> My show was on Prime too, but we don't have <laughs> yeah. a conflict of interest in that show. If you put the if you put the brakes on, um, if you have a, a protest, typically in a government procurement protest, yes, the the, the project does not get started until the That's dispute right. is settled. Right? This is not abnormal. So Amazon went to court last month and said, okay, you know, this let's do the normal thing. Let's stop this before it starts, and then let's adjudicate this and figure out who who's the winner. 
So yesterday, a cross town rivalry here too. You know, Bezos and Satya don't really get along either. So well, I mean, there's all kinds of, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, backstories here. But this week, um, the court ruled that yes, it should be held up until a decision is made, and then they made them pay forty-two million dollars as a bond in case you know if it turns out to be a frivolous action, which I honestly don't think it is. I think, I think what, regardless of the outcome. They have, they have the evidence in a case to make that that this that this is worth protesting, right? So, um, so it's stopped now. There's nothing going on with it. There's, there's all this politics. There's all this money, and there's these two, as you say, cloud rivals, you know, in each in, in each in the corner and trying to get this this um, this contract, and it's a big deal. So you've, you know, you've been covering this from the get-go, probably most knowledgeable about all of the backstories and front stories. <laughs> what do you think, and I don't want to put you on the spot, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but where do you, where do you see next steps and fast forward a couple of years and what happens? And I'm assuming, it's not, it, I'm assuming it's a year or more to get to final disposition, but maybe not. You know, what are your thoughts? I mean, I really don't know how long this is going to take. Yeah. It has yeah. already taken way longer than people expected it to take. If you know, you talked about the CIA contract, which I wrote about um, last week. They're doing a somewhat similar kind of bidding process, but they're they're not going to go with a single vendor. Their feeling is the kind of thing that I talked about up front on this yeah. is that if you go with multiple vendors, you'll get the best of what each has to offer at any particular Absolutely. moment in time. So, well, actually, what's also interesting is there are at least 10 more contracts of this size coming out in procurement, right? So, so this isn't the first, this is like, sorry, this is the first of many big battles right. out there. Why don't we just make this multi-cloud and everyone can participate? Like, not well, just- I think that's what private companies are doing. So maybe <laughs> the government should be doing that as well. So I mean, that, that's all I, an argument to be made there, Ray, but um, this is the way DOD decides to do it and it hasn't. It hasn't really, you know, it's, it's been a lot of drama all the way through this process and it doesn't seem like it's going to stop. And to answer your question, Vala, um, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I don't know if this contract, if this whole idea ends up getting tossed out and they start again and go the CIA's route or, you know, what happens? I, I, I'm, I am not privy to sure, any information sure, sure. on this and I'm just speculating, but um, who knows what's going to happen. You mentioned you mentioned Google. You mentioned ten billion, and certainly you wrote about the latest earnings for Google Cloud at a run rate of two point six one billion quarterly. You're talking about a ten million billion dollar run rate. Talk about the Google Cloud and and uh, you know where they are and your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing the thing is that um, you know they they were very forthcoming with their their cloud numbers this time, which is has not been the case in the past. And so usually you can draw the conclusion if they're not sharing the numbers, they're not very good, right? Um, I mean, that that would be the you know the, the thinking, right? And they, so they decided to share them, and they're they're, they're pretty good. I, I mean, they're not good. Uh, Amazon and Microsoft, and YouTube, fifteen billion. Yeah, that was an unbelievable first time breakout. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you know, I mean, two point six billion is good. It shows that you know, Curian has been there for a year now, uh, exactly a year, I think, almost exactly a year. And you know, he's brought in you know this guy from SAP to run sales. He brought in Amit Savory to to be his president of the cloud division. I mean, he's he's got you know these very very um, 
decade long experience, multiple decades of experienced people in place. And it seems to be working, right? And they're not, I mean, you're not gonna go from zero to, to 100 right away, but to go to a 2.61 billion dollar quarter, I mean, they need to build on this. They need to put quarter on top of quarter on top of quarter. But as I've written, and as you guys know, the cloud business is huge and it's, it's still a huge potential market out there. And, you know, there's money to be made. I don't know that Google will ever be as big as, as Microsoft and Amazon are right now. But if Google can become a substantial business, then when you put that together with everything else Google is doing, you know, I think that's good enough. Absolutely. And this cloud thing has got legs. Yeah, it's got legs. <laughs> it's got legs. It's got legs. And, and, and it's and, and $10 billion is no longer a rounding error for Google, right? It used to be a rounding error, yeah, like true, Google true, Cloud. True. The number was like, ah, okay, a couple billion dollars, who cares? This is a serious business and, and probably one of the few things that Google moved beyond being a one-trick pony in advertising, yeah. uh, which, is, which is what some of the challenges have been. But God, this is only February, right? Think about the news already. I mean, this, this is a very fast Q1 so far. Anything else you're looking at right now? Yeah, that, that where you are you going next? Where are you physically going to be next? Uh, what are you covering? I mean, the next place I actually go to is Google next. <laughs> so, <laughs> good segue. Good segue. Good segue. <laughs> oh, man. This is great. We've got Ron Miller, enterprise tech reporter. Always giving us this. You've been on 11 times, according to Aubrey. Uh, Love TV. Wow. So that's the amount that we got. So, that's but, awesome. Uh, oh, fi final before we go. All right. I, I know how you felt about Mookie Betts, and it sucks. <laughs> Predictions about Brady. I mean, there we go. Stay I mean, that's that's as that's as uh, unknown as the Jedi contract. <laughs> <laughs> it's up there with the Jedi. We contract. don't want to put Ron Miller on record, but yeah, I'm telling you. I, I, mean, I hope he stays. That's all I'll say. I hope yeah, he stays. He I don't want to. I don't want to see him in another uniform. That'll be fake. <laughs> but my prediction: he's going to go. Yeah. All Let's right. Well, last word there. So, <laughs> hey, Ron, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for being thanks here. Thanks for having me. You know, Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you too, guys. Thanks. Wow. That's <laughs> <laughs> all. So, I tell you what, it's even better to have you in person. I got to tell you, because usually, you know, we close the browser window and we're done. Now you won't see it, but after we finish, we're going to give a big hug to each other and uh, maybe even share a coffee. So that's awesome. Next week, uh, episode 179. We're getting closer. So this year we'll cross 200 episodes. We have, oh God, you got to help me with the last name. Rami Neustadt, author of You Can Have It All, Not Just at the Same Time, A Guide for Women Everywhere. Vijay Sondrom's Chief Strategy Officer at Zoho. And Nicole France, one of our other favorites, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research. If you want to talk about user experience and how to delight stakeholders, there's no better person to learn from than Nicole. So it's going to be an amazing show next Friday. And if it's Friday, it's the Strop Ray closing remarks. I can't believe we're here. <laughs> four years. We're in. Yeah, four years, guys. 179, close to 400 unique guests. And I tell you, when we talk about the importance of staying teachable, this is how we stay teachable. So if you want to learn about a topic, please recommend a guest to our incredible producer, Aubrey Coggins. You can follow her at Aubrey BT. Aubrey on the screen. And uh, on Twitter. And follow us at Disrupt TV Show. And recommend who you want to see on the show. Now, to be honest with you, I think until July we're booked. So you're really giving us guests for the second half of the year. But uh, we love to hear from you. Yeah, and make sure to catch us live February 26th, 27th 
Ambient Experience Summit in Atlanta at the Porsche headquarters, also known as the Avengers headquarters. You know what you're doing. So <laughs> happy Friday, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.